Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. What does the word disruptive mean to you? It means going beyond the ordinary, going beyond the status quo. Not thinking in the conventional way, not just sort of following the herd. Disruptive means shaking things up, you know? Disruptive entrepreneur is somebody who sees the problem and embraces the problem with a new way. Shake up and awakening. Quality will take care of itself and you'll go from being disruptive but also profitable. When you use your own reservoir of talent, when you love what you do, then you disrupt. Mix it up, change it up and dominate. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Hi, everyone. Hi. How you doing? This is a funky little venue, isn't it? Funky little venue. All you need is popcorn. And the back row. <laughs> All right, so we're going to make this really cosy and intimate because I thought that would be the nicest way to do this. I don't know how many opportunities you're going to get in your life to be this close to me, to, uh, <laughs> to our guest, who's a billionaire, as you know, and um, an amazing chap who I was very fortunate to meet when we did the first podcast. And we wanted to make it really about you. And so we're just going to do the whole thing as a Q&A. Now, I know once we get a couple of questions in, we'll get in really good flow. Uh, we'll probably go on lots of tangents, etc. But all the content is going to be driven by you. <coughs> right, so I'm going to just uh, leave you for a minute or two to think about anything you might like to ask David when, he, uh, when we bring him up onto the stage. So I'll give you a bit of time to just imagine there's some nice background music. <laughs> No, don't hum it. Don't sing it. <laughs> I definitely would take a minute to consider what you might like to ask. I, I know that when I was starting out in business, I would have jumped at the opportunity to meet such a successful person. It took me quite a few... Well, it took me years to meet my first billionaire, but it certainly took me many, many months to get around some well-experienced business people. So to be, you know, this close to someone to be able to ask him anything you like, I think it's really valuable. Well, you get that. That's why you're here. Um, so have a think about what you might like to ask. Uh, by the way, if you want to ask a question for David and you want me to answer it, let me know so I'm not saying like a twat for four hours. Because <laughs> I've kind of done my bit now and then that's it. This seat is uncomfortable as well. So, But yeah, if you'd like me to answer a question or both of us to answer a question, that's totally cool as well. Kieran, do we know where David is? <laughs> He's probably doing some billion pound business deal or billion dollar. Ah, here he is. And uh, when you ask your question, stick your hand up. We're going to pass you a mic because we are recording this for a live podcast, the first session and the, um, and the session afterwards. So please give Mr. David McCoy a huge round of applause. Thank you, David. No, no, you're all right. I'm so sorry. Have you, um, have you, are you mic'd up? I'm not. There it is. I'm not. I'm sorry. I'm just it. So while David's getting dressed, uh, are there, who would like to ask the first question? Okay, we're going to go with Majuli at the front. Uh, have we got a microphone for Julie? Uh, this is the one. It's all right, mate. I'll do it. I <laughs> know, uh, I know. You've got your, I know. There you go. Would you like to give Julie the yes, book? Sure. And the microphone. Yeah. There you go, Julie. There's your book. Thank you very much. Um, I'm delighted to be here and delighted to have the opportunity to ask a question, um, and especially the first one. So with the title of your book, as in rethinking and entrepreneurs being the next revolutionaries, 
Um, I've been listening to David Goggins' book um, where he talks about being extreme obsessive. I've listened to Rob on stage talking about extreme. Um, I've listened to Grant Cardone talking about being times 10. As some, 10x. 10x, sorry, times, sorry. That's times the, 10. <laughs> multiplied by 10, it's not the same, is it? <laughs> sorry, 10x, sorry. Okay, I'm a Brit. <laughs> um, what would your advice be? A, what do you think of extreme obsessive 10x for um, an entrepreneur going out there to do business? And I'm going to say in the UK environment, if we can. So maybe, Rob, you can answer it as well. Okay. Um, but what's your advice to somebody who's starting out relatively, got one business, starting another business, linked to being a complete revolutionary in their industry? Can we turn David up a bit? Turn me down a bit. You have to plug the little, hey! the little, part. <laughs> the little part into the big part. You can have all the money yeah. in the world. Yeah. <laughs> the AV department can go home now. <laughs> we're, we're plugged in. So I think there's two, two points there. Um, one is the point I was trying to make in the book, which is that the world is moving too fast right now for incremental thinking which worked fine from the Industrial Revolution up until about 20 years ago, but now you need a revolutionary or an entrepreneurial way to approach problems. So the point in my book is that everything, not only business, but everything in life needs a, a more entrepreneurial approach in that if people want to change their life and people want to change the way they view and process problems, they need to think in a more entrepreneurial way. So that's, that's one point. Um, now, as someone that grew up in America, I have an advantage when it comes to being an entrepreneur because America is the, is the country of hopes and dreams. In America, and that's what brand America is. In America, supports failure more than any other country in the world. So in America, if you try to do something and you fail, um, your social groups, your family groups, the financial institutions, your businesses, everybody will, will support you on trying again, as long as you pick yourself up and don't complain. So if you don't complain, you pick yourself up, they'll support you. Most countries uh, try to uh, stay away from people who have failed, and it's, it's, in the UK would be no different. It's not as normal to try, fail, try, try again, as it would be in America. So it's a little, it just makes the job harder for you in, in the UK. But that's changing with, with every, everything else. But I think um, in your comment about being uh, impulsive or compulsive or impulsive, obsessive, obsessive um, th that I think is, that's a good thing, not a bad thing from my optic, right? To be fanatical about, about something is, is, is a good thing. Right. I mean, that's 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 what you want. Um, you know, if, if you're going to a doctor because you're sick, you want a doctor. That's like his or her only only goal in life is to is to figure out how to cure whatever it is that's ailing you. You don't want someone who's sort of casual about it. And, <laughs> you know, might work, might not. About half the time it works. Half the time it doesn't. Let's hope you're on the lucky half. So I think I think that that's it's good to be. Uh, fanatical and, and compulsive. That's my view, anyway. If 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 um, um, if you said that you were 
fanatical and, and, and obsessively in love with someone, that other person would, would find that attractive, right? So that should, work the way, that should work itself through everything else that you try to do in life, in my view. So you asked about the Eng you on my side from the English perspective. So I've actually mo modeled a lot of Americans for brand, social media, content and business because uh, I very much was under the English culture of major fear of failure and judgment and ridicule by friends and family and a real reluctance to take risks. And so from what age 25, I'm 40 now, 80% of the content that I've consumed for business and personal development and marketing and sales are American. So I, some people have said to me, Rob, you're the most English American or you're the most American Englishman. And I kind of take that as a bit of a compliment. So I've tried to adapt that more brave, open-minded, not so worried about what they say about me attitude towards business. On the point of extremism or 10x or obsession, I think your, your business and being an entrepreneur, of course, obsessing over that is a healthy obsession. But I think it depends on your personality and who you are as to how you define that. So, for example, you can go on, po on social media and you can create polarized debate by being quite extreme. But if you're doing that as a gimmick to get social media reach, but beneath it, it's not really who you are and there's some incongruence. Yeah. Hey, look, I kind of I'd rather you try than didn't. But I feel like there's going to be a, a little bit of lack of feeling authentic. And I'm always trying to figure out who I am, as in, you know, sometimes I feel really gregarious to put myself out there and encourage a load of debate and noise. And then other times I just kind of don't really want any of that. And I want to be more balanced and neutral and warm. So some of it is just how you feel. Because sometimes you go out there and you're like, right, let's, let's get out there. And, you know, you're going to create some resistance. Are you ready for that resistance? So I think if you are the sort of person that flirts with and encourages extremism or putting yourself out there and creating con controversy and polarity go and dance with it go and play with it if that's the work the game you want to play what you'll get is you'll get faster growth but you'll also get faster resistance if that's not who you are and you're more uh, well I don't really want that I just want to do my steady thing consistently do that you'll get slower growth but slower resistance because social media exaggerates everything. The internet exaggerates everything. Everything is happening so much quicker now. So, yeah, I think it depends who you are. Like with Grant Cardone, for example, I know him very well. I, I, I feel a lot of integrity from him because he just wants to go big, 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 big. I asked him, what's the worst advice you've ever been given? He said uh, that bigger isn't better because he just thinks that bigger is better. Bigger company is better. You've got more reach. You impact more lives. You make more money. But not everyone wants big. Not everyone wants attention. And once you're comfortable with who you are, you're probably more comfortable with whether you should be obsessive or balanced, fanatical or consistent. So I know it's a bit more of a complicated answer. But I think it's also fair to say, you just got to wake up and see how you're feeling today. Because if you're not ready for a fight, don't go and pick one. Because <laughs> sometimes like, I think, well, man, I put, I put that post out there. Or I had this debate with someone at 7 a.m. in the morning. It's 11 a.m. and I don't want it anymore. But then sometimes you're up for it. So it's mood dependent as well. Okay, next question. Right, we'll go to Shaz. If, could Shaz have a book as well? Don't leave him out. Shaz, you, I love your attire today. Thank you very much. So this is Shaz. Shaz is our accountant, David. Ah, 
Hi, David. How are you? Very good, thank you. And yourself? I'm fine, thank you. Good, nice to meet you. Looking at the title of your book, uh, we all think based on our own biases, hab habits, patterns, norms, experiences. You know, you can't read the label when you're inside the bottle. So what do you do when you're challenging or trying to rethink new ideas? What's your thought pattern or your behavior or your habits that you try and change to come up with new different ideas? That's, a, that's, that's, a, that's an excellent question. Um, how do I, what process do I use to rethink something? Um, I, I do one thing, and, and one thing consistently, which is when I approach a problem, I put myself in the future and where I see that problem already solved, and then I turn around, I look backwards, and I build a plan to get me to where I already am. So if you stand in the present and you have a big problem in front of you, it can be hugely overwhelming. And people will tell you, well, break the problem into small pieces and it will be, you know, be easier to, to, to bite off and so on and so forth. But it's still, it's still overwhelming when you're looking at a, a huge problem like that. So what I do is I put myself in the future where the problem has already been solved. And I look at that construct and then I look back at the present and I, and I build a plan of how I'm going to get there. And, you know, people say, well, how did you have, you know, such a vision to know where it was going to end up? It really wasn't that amazing at all because when you put yourself in the future, it, it becomes crystal clear to you what it's going to look like. And then you just have to build yourself a plan to get there. It's the only way to, in my opinion, it's the only way to approach a very difficult industry or a difficult problem that you're trying to totally rethink. You should try it. Yeah, a couple of things I'd add, Chaz. So one would be to be the person that disrupts you rather than someone else. So I'm, I'm very much a big believer in the concept of disrupting yourself. I want to disrupt my own patterns, behaviors, and habits before my competitors do, before a recession does, before something that blindsides me. So I'm always thinking, okay, how can I second guess? Imagine I was trying to beat myself. Imagine I was a competitor of mine. What weaknesses might I see in me and me try and solve or cure those difficulties before someone else does? That'd be one thing. The second thing, and this has been quite a revelation to me over the last few years. For years, as we do, we follow people we like and we're interested in and we read books that appeal to us. But what that does is create a very myopic view of the world. You know, if you're conservative or Labour, for example, you only see that way. So now I challenge myself to follow people I didn't think I liked to learn from people I, uh, if they're very left and I'm very right, for example, I mean, I don't just, to, you're a politician, just to use that as an example. I try and learn from the other side and learn from people who have very different beliefs to me because then that can challenge the way I look at something and I might get some insight. So when I write my book, Money, of course, that whole obsession was really a capitalist obsession. But then I started looking at studying communism and socialism and trying to get the anti-argument and I think that keeps you fresh. And I keep, that's a brilliant analogy. You can't see the label when you're inside the bowl. So you've, you, you've got to become something else to see the, the label from the outside. And that's not easy to do because we have our own biases. So in a way, you're challenging everything you believe. You're almost taking yourself out yourself and going, oh, look at this life construct that you've formed. I'm going to question it all because I'd rather do that than someone else pick holes in me. What's your name, Tycoon? <laughs> He's got a Tycoon hat. Is that your own merch? Love it. What's your name, sir? Hi, David. Hi, Rob. Um, I'm Glenn. I'm the tattoo tycoon. Hi, Glenn. Um, 
I've got tattoos and I'm a tycoon, I guess, <laughs> where it came from. Um, David and, and Rob, actually, as well. So my question's about scalability, about scaling your business. Um, I'm guessing it's not just adding a billion number noughts on the end of what you're doing already. It's more about uh, the tips on how to do it. So did you start the business knowing it was going to get to a billion, or did you get to a million and thought, I'm going to do 10, then 100, or how do you scale, and when do you scale, I think is more important. Well, um, I, I've, I've, I personally have never thought about a business as um, my goal is to get to a certain size. So I've never really thought about that. Um, and you obviously shouldn't either, unless you only tattoo fat people, you're going to have a problem. <laughs> you, you, there's only so, so much room on an average person's body, so you might not want to think If about, I said yeah. that, I'd be getting trolled on LinkedIn <laughs> right now. So, yeah, I forgot you record everything in. Yeah. <laughs> we do. Yeah. Everything. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, it, I, I, I approach... I approach a business as trying to solve a problem that I find would be interesting to solve, that the world needs solved, and through doing that, you can, you can make money by doing that. So I, I look at it more as a problem that people say can't be solved, I think can be solved. I use the methodology that we just spoke about, which is putting myself in a solved solution, in a solved state where the problem has been solved and seeing what it looks like. Um, and it, it, I don't think about the size of the business, but if it's a big problem that no one else has been able to solve before, then by definition, it, you know, you'll be able to scale it. Now, m most interesting businesses that I've been fortunate enough to be involved with, by their very nature, they're global and, and they can grow sort of infinitely. And the way if creating value is your, is your thing, then you want a business that's global and infinitely scalable, which is why, you know, 10 years ago you saw a lot of relatively small companies being bought at this huge price. When you saw WhatsApp was, was, was bought, you saw that it was, you know, 14 billion or whatever it was. And people said, how could a company with 27 employees you know, how could it sell for so much money? Well, it's because it's, it's, it's global and it's infinitely scalable. So you want a business that's infinitely scalable, that can have a global footprint, that doesn't need global operations. You can run it from one place, but you can sell it on a global basis. And then that becomes uh, a huge blueprint. And that, that business can be as big as you want it to be until it's someone else's turn to to run it and maybe they can, he or she can take it even bigger. That'd be my view anyway. I feel somewhat um, unqualified to answer this sat next to David. So I'll give you a, a humble answer to this because I haven't scaled my business to this. For years, people have been asking me where I buy my watches. Many of you may know I'm a watch collector. I'm a watch investor. And those as an asset class have done me very well in the last 15 years. I have never shared where I source my watches from or my watch dealer until now. My watch dealer used to be a professional footballer for Manchester United and he formed a watch brand called Broadwalk and he sources the higher end brands like Rolex, Audemars Piguet, Patek Philippe and Richard Mille. I trust him, I've used him for many years and recently we've done a partnership 
Hence, I'm inviting you, if you want to start investing in watches and protect your money from the banks and inflation, to check out Broadwalk. That's B-R-O-A-D-W-A-L-K. And the website is broadwalkgroup.com. The email is sales at broadwalkgroup.com. And please don't share this, but his number is 07496 878153. Obviously, only message him if you're serious about buying and investing in the higher-end watches. People have been asking me for years, and for the first time ever, you can get access to my watch team. Size that David has. One thing I would say from my research in writing the book Money, um, over a lot of research, there were three commonalities of the wealthiest people in history going back thousands of years, not just modern times. And I'll give you one of them. And one of them was the desire to serve vast amounts of people. So it kind of links to one of the comments David says. But if you don't just have a plan or a goal, but a genuine desire to serve vast numbers of people, then you'll connect the dots along the way and take the opportunities and the partnerships or the franchise operations or whatever it is that gets you to vast numbers of people. Now, a lot of people just don't have that desire, and that's okay. A lot of people want a lifestyle business, and they want their laptop, and you know they don't really want too many employees. And, and there's, I don't, they're the people who say, I don't want this, and I don't want this, and I don't want this, and I don't want this. And that's cool, but they're not destined for vast scale. And I have accepted, and I desire to serve vast numbers of people. So that would be one. And the second thing, again, David would know this better than anybody in this room, but there's a, a, a concept called the network effect. And the network effect is essentially the way to get to as many people on the planet as quickly as possible. And so going back, rail was one of them. You know, steel created rail, and then we got to people quicker. Telecommunications through, um, you know, micro radio waves have got to people quicker. Now it's even quicker as it's speed of light through fiber optic. Um, and apparently it can get quicker than speed of light. Um, it can be instantaneous. I, f- I forget the phrase. I, st- I studied it in my book. Um, but they're doing studies where there's simultaneous exchange of information miles apart, like simultaneous, quicker than light. But the point of that ever-increasing speed is, is the network effect. So, you know, you know, they used to say it takes 10 years to be an overnight success. I, I think that's something that should be rethought because I don't think it takes that long anymore. There's this kid called Ryan who's got a YouTube channel called Ryan's Toys Reviews, and he's seven years old, and his channel made 22 million last year. Little fucker. <laughs> Little master. So he's not even 10. So it doesn't take 10 years. And you can go viral, and it can go internet sensation. There's some luck involved, but it can be quicker. And it's quicker now because information is quicker. Reaching of your customers is quicker. Getting real-time feedback is quicker. Everything is so much quicker. So embracing network effect. So um, internet is the greatest network effect of all, I believe. It's built on the foundation of fiber optics, which goes at the speed of light. So it's the quickest ever. And of course, social media on top of the internet enables us to reach tens of thousands, hundreds or millions of customers really quickly. And people can see your designs in other sides of the world instantly. I have, there, there are some countries I don't even know the name of who listen to my podcast. My podcast is listed in 202 countries. There's only 220 something countries because of this network effect. So I reckon if, if you work on that, I think you'll get good scale more quickly. It was a pleasure.
So we'll go to Curtis in the middle, right in the middle, middle. Nakash. Hi, David. How are um, you? So I'm nearly done with the book. So I'm loving it so far. Now you have two copies, so you have a Christmas, have your Christmas copies, shopping so is already partly done. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I'm going to paraphrase a bit out of it it's towards the start. To identify and achieve a dream, talk about things that you are for. It's always more inspiring to be for something than against something. And I absolutely love this. This was very early on in the book and it, it gripped me. So to, to make sure this value goes wide and deep in your company or a company, is it just up to the leader to instill this in the team or would you use a particular person, role, influencer? So the, the, the question is about my theory that it's always better to be for something than against something. And how do you instill that in a business? Is it just from the leader down, yeah. right? Okay, it's a, it's a hugely important concept to me because the world is, is gotten farther and farther away from that concept to be for something. And it's this destruction of that value is being led by the politicians and, and, and um, in journalists to, to some extent, and, and let's take them separately and, and why it came about, but they're changing, trying, and it's up to us in this room to prevent this from happening, they're trying to globally change the way we do things to a winner-take-all as opposed to a compromise. So when I started out, I worked for a, a, a great American politician, Irish-American guy by the name of Tip O'Neill, who's Speaker of the House. So he'd be second to the President of the United States, and Ronald Reagan was President when Tip O'Neill was Speaker, and I worked for him, and my little desk was right outside his office, so every time he'd come back from the floor after a vote, he'd always come by my desk, or if, after he'd come back from a meeting, come by my desk, and I'd say, Mr. Speaker, you know, how'd we do today? And he'd say, well, Dave, we got half, and that's good. Half is good. And that's the way America used to be run. Whereas you would have a view and I would have a view, and it doesn't make me right, and it doesn't make you right, it makes us both right in our own little worlds. Based on your world that you're living in, you have a, a point of view, and it's not negotiable. It's your point of view. I have a point of view based on the world that I live in, and it's also not negotiable, it's how I feel. And, and if you wanna run a country or a business, you have to take both of those into consideration because the world is made up of people that have, have different views. And the, the, the politicians led, mostly unfortunately, by America have gotten to this point where it's all or nothing. And whatever the other side says, you have to, not only is it wrong, if you're a good party member, you should attack it. So if Rob's in one party and I'm in another, not only should I say that he's wrong, which I have no right to do because he, he has a different world and I've never walked in his shoes. So I have no right to have a, 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 I have no right to say what he is saying is wrong. I can have a different view, but it doesn't make his wrong. But not only do I say that he's wrong, I actually attack him. And I actually attack him as a man and try to bring him down as a man to try to make my point more relevant. So that's the way politics have gotten. It's like that now in the UK where everybody's just attacking and it's like that. Um, it's getting like that around the whole Western world. And, and the journalists sort of thrive on that because it sells newspapers and it sells time in the news. And the 
news business is under attack because less people are paying for the news because you don't need to. You know, when I first started traveling as a, as a business guy, as soon as I checked into a hotel, I turned on CNN to find out what's going on in the world. Well, now I've already looked at it in the elevator on the way up to my room. You know, I've already flipped through my phone, so I know what's going on in the world, so there's no reason to turn on CNN. So because there's less people watching the news, there's less people reading the news, the quality of the journalism has gone down because the pay has gone down and you can't, you used to be able to go work for the, for the London Times and you could make a career out of it. You could go as a young man or young woman and you could stay there for your whole career and you could buy a house, you could get a mortgage and you could pay for your kids to go to school and you could pay for your kids, you know, rugby uniform and you could pay for a vacation and you could pay for your car, car payments. That world is gone. There's not enough money in that business anymore. So career journalists aren't staying, people are coming and going. Uh, and there's less pay and less people reading it, so they have to be more sensational in what they report on. So they love this sort of fighting that's going on, and that's leading to a, and then now you take it to social media, which allows sort of a binary approach to what's on social media, I like or I don't like, um, as opposed to, that's an interesting point of view, right? And people then build friend groups in social media around their way of thinking, which adds to this whole construct we have going around the world, which is my, I start being friended and, and social media recommends more people that have a like-minded view to, uh, that I have, which makes my echo chamber bigger and bigger, which gives me less time to listen to other people's views. So you have it, in summary, we have it going on at a political level, and you have it going on at a journalistic level, and you have it going on at social media. So. My, my hope and my hypothesis in my book is that we need to rethink this whole construct from the bottom up because people fundamentally um, actually find another viewpoint interesting. They've just been trained over the last 15 or 20 years that you attack the other, the other viewpoint and it's, it's, it's crazy and it won't last long term but there'll be a lot of destruction done in the, in, the, in the intervening years. So um, I'm hoping that what people will do, and this answers your question specifically, from the bottom up, people will say that that's no way to run a railroad, that's no way to run a country, that's no way to run a business, there's no way to run a family, there's no way, way to run a friendship group, um, it's no way to run your life, and that they'll change it from the bottom up. So at the company level, what you need to do is only hire people that embrace inclusion, collaboration, and empowerment. Only allow people into your business, if it's your business, or if it's your department, or if it's your group, only allow people in that embrace inclusion, collaboration, and empowerment. And if people are, are wired for you know my way or the highway, you just can't let them into the ecosystem. And eventually this will go back to a sane, a sane way, but there'll be if we're not careful, there'll be a, re a global revolution in the meantime, if we're, we're not careful. And you see that. You know, when I wrote the first, the first draft of that book, um, there wasn't what's going on in Hong Kong, what's going on in Venezuela, um, what's going on in, in Cairo, what's going on now in Beirut, what's, you know, what's going on all over the world in all these places where there's these little revolutions going on. There was the Arab, Arab Spring, but that was a, about it. Now you see it popping up all over the world. People are unhappy and they're having a hard time articulating why they're unhappy and that 
that frustration gives the world Trump, that frustration gives the world Brexit, um, both of which are, uh, are huge, um, huge expense um, in huge disruption away from the core issues that need to be solved, in my view. Thank you. Curtis, in our niche, just a quick add-on. Um, I think David answered that really well. There's quite a lot of companies that their marketing strategy is to attack what all other companies do wrong. And I, I have a little word for that called anti-marketing. And I just don't think that's a smart play for the long term. I think it, it's very easy to look over there what's going on instead of over there what you could achieve. So I think that's really what you, know, what you stand for is where are you looking? What are you looking to solve? So try not to get stuck into that world of anti-marketing. It's so common in our industry. Focus on what you do well. People want to know what you do well. I think there's a bit of a disconnect in Britain because we feel a bit reticent to, well, I stand for this, i.e. I'm good at this, I do this. I'm, we worry about it being bragging. And I think, you know, the American culture is a good culture for us to learn from, that it's okay to talk about the skills that you've got and the talents that you've got and how you can help people. But it's also quite a British thing to, oh, I'm not going to talk about what I'm doing well because that's being cocky and arrogant and I want to be humble. But then all you end up doing is talk about what everyone else is doing wrong. And that's not open and uplifting. Cool, so who's next? <laughs> thank you, David. And thank you for giving us the time today as well. Thank you for giving us all some time of your time. Thank um, you. A question today is, uh, when you're starting out, if you had mentors when you started out, was you like with sort of Jim Rowan and Earl Nightingale? Or who was your main mentors when you were starting out on your journey? Well, I, I had a lot. Now, look, I, I, I have, and I'm the first to admit, you know, a lot of business people always talk about how they pull themselves up from the bootstrap and anyone can do it and, and, you know, stop bitching. You just have to wake up early and work hard and all that. Look, I've had huge advantage. Number one, I had an unbelievable mother and father. And I had a, a, a mother that, that constantly um, taught me that it was okay to fail, that constantly taught me um, that I would be something, you know, that I would, I would accomplish what I want to accomplish. So having a, and I, I, I mentioned my mother more than my father only because my father died before I ever became successful. And my mother was with me until she was 102, up until a few, a few weeks ago, actually. So, so um, it, it, having a woman like that in your life um, and having someone that supports you in your life gets you 80% of the way there. So, and that now, you know, then you have to, and hopefully you'll be lucky enough that then you can replace that with, with, you know, another woman in your life that can, that's not your mother, but your partner that you can, you know, continue to take you in the case of a woman, they'd want to have a, 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 a woman or a man in their life or a partner of some sort to help them. But that concept of having someone um, that can help you and support you like that is, is, is hugely valuable. So I've, I've, so first I started off, so in American baseball we say, you know, I, I, because of my parents, I started on, on third base and, and, you know, I think I hit a home run because it's only in American baseballs, you only have 25% of the way left to go once you're on third base. So, and, and, and number two, I was, I was born, um, you know, I was the youngest of seven, but there was 11 of us in the family because my parents and my, and my grandparents lived in the house. So you get to see a lot when you're the, 
youngest of 11 people in the house, you get to absorb a lot. And I was born curious and I was born optimistic. Um, and being born curious and optimistic, coupled with being able to observe 11 people in my family, coupled with, um, I was probably born in the, in the exactly right socioeconomic environment. We were a blue collar family, so, you know, we didn't have to, you know, rob anybody to eat, but we didn't have anything ec excess. So it's sort of like that sweet spot of wanting to accomplish more, but not just bitter that you, that you, that you, you know, that you have nothing to eat. So I had all those advantages. Okay. So I say that up front. So, um, I forget the question though. <laughs> <laughs> Who were your mentors when you were oh, yeah, starting Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, I, I guess he's just trying to fill four hours of time. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I, I guess um, I, I've ha I had different mentors at different stages. So early on, when I first got out of college, I was on a, a charity board uh, called the National Alliance to End Homelessness. So this was, you know, the year I got out of college, and um, on that board. It was a bunch of, how I ended up on it, I've, I've, I have no idea how they asked me, but, but I ended up on that board. And W. Clement Stone, who was the first millionaire in America, or the first public millionaire anyway, who wrote a book called Success to a Positive Mental Attitude, he was on the board with me. And um, I had never met anybody, you know, I'd never met a millionaire before, and, and, and he was... 190 years old when I knew him back then. So, you know, he's, if he was still alive now, he'd be a, a thousand years old. But, um, and he had, and he, and he told me something that was very, very, very interesting. He said to me, he said, you have to make what's important in your life instinctive. He said, you, there are certain things that you're not going to have time to process. They have to be instinctive. And while he was telling me the story, he, 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 pushed a little pencil off the, off the table, and while he was talking to me, he picked the pencil up, and he said, you see how I, as an adult, can drop a pencil on the floor, I can pick it up and continue this conversation without losing my train of thought? A, a five-year-old would, would drop a pencil and would go down to pick it up and might not come back up for a day, right? They'd find, <laughs> they'd find a crumb or they'd find something on the, on the floor and they'd be off, off on their way to something else. He said, Everything that's important in your life has to be as instinctive as being able to pick up a pencil when you drop it, and that will free up your brain to be able to process the new incoming things. So that was, so he was my, probably my first mentor because he gave me that advice. And then um, after that, there was, there was a man named uh, Walter Scott, who's 88 now, who I just saw last weekend. I went and saw him in, in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, who was sort of like a father, father to me. Um, and he taught me that taking care of your downside is um, the most important thing in business and the upside will take care of itself. So just make sure you protect your downside. So he was probably my second. My third was probably Jack Welsh that ran GE. Um, I wrote him a letter and I talk about it in my book, you know, a cold call and he, and he let me have some of his time. Um, and, and he taught me, um, you know, he taught me a lot actually. And, um, so that was probably W. Clement Stone, then Walter Scott, then Jack Welsh. So probably three, three different phases in my life. It's fascinating listening to David because 
I think it's great that David acknowledged the start that he had, but I think we can all learn from that. And for example, born in quite a good sort of family unit, demographic place, didn't lack, but didn't have too much. Well, you can create that own environment in your own life if you don't have it. Before the age of 25, while I was an artist, I knew in my heart I needed to get my work seen in London because there's an amazing art scene in London and there was, you don't even know what art is in Peterborough. <laughs> it's like blood from a fight on the wall. This is art. <laughs> um, but I didn't have the courage. It's only an hour on the train. But I didn't have the courage or even the awareness to go, I need to get to London more. Because if I'm in London a lot more, you know, London is an amazing vibe here and it rubs off on you. So that's the first thing. The next thing David said was he was born curious and optimistic. Well, I believe we all are. I believe that is the, the, part of the essence of humanity. What baby isn't curious? But we lose it along the way often, curiosity. I believe curiosity is one of the greatest entrepreneurial traits or outlooks. But we, we lose it along the way when we think we know it all or, or someone challenges our views. So we can hear David say that and go, well, I'm, I'm going to try and cultivate curiosity and optimism in myself, even if I wasn't in the family. The next thing is being the youngest of a load of people. So out of all the successful people I know, I'm one of the youngest because I have pushed myself to have mentors who are 60 and 70 years old. Now, I like to hang around with young people to remember I'm not old. <laughs> He's laughing. He's one of them. So Kieran's 25. And, and, and Nakash, how old are you, Nakash? 26. 26. Bella? 21. 21. So, I, so like, I take these guys out for dinner and I am old enough to be their dad. Um, and in Peterborough, I'm old enough to be their granddad. Um, so <laughs> but I love hanging out with those guys because they make me realise I'm not old. But I love having mentors at 60 and 70 because they've got so much more wisdom and experience than me. And when I was 25, I just used to nap, oh, they're my mates, that's it. But now I'll go and seek out being the youngest of 11 in a family, except they're just not brothers and sisters. They're people I'm in a network group with. So everything that David fortunately had, you can create. And I think that listening to that, I guess hearing David say that has made me realise I've gone to seek out those things I didn't have. And that's probably why my life's better since I was 25. All right, great. Who's next? To the gentleman here. What's your name, sir? Roy Bush. Ah, Roy, how are you doing? So your microphone and book is coming. Hi, David. Um, my question is, why are you here? Uh, you're very successful, uh, billionaire. Most of us would want to be in your shoes. What motivates you now is, the, is really the question. What keeps you motivated? What the fuck are you doing hanging around with Rob? That's what, <laughs> that's what you're saying, isn't it, right? Thanks, man. Um, that's for you to say, Rob. Yeah. Um, I, I came to see what I can learn, um, to see what's on people's minds, to see what people are thinking, to see if what I'm thinking resonates with people, to see if, if, if my view of, of the world um, resonates with you and whether it's, it's um, something that other people agree with or disagree with and why. So I came to learn. I came to see if when, when I say that I believe that we can change 
the world from the bottom up now for the first time ever, whether that resonates with people or not, because from the beginning of time, the world has been run from the top down. Um, that's the way the world has been run since the beginning of time. All the power and all the decisions were made at the top. Now, with a combination of globalization, the internet, social media, the way we consume information, and, and the fact that the top has messed it up so bad, <laughs> when you put all those things together, um, there's a, we have a one-time chance to rebalance the world from the bottom up. And I firmly believe that it's doable, and I firmly believe it's gonna happen the hard way or, or the gentle way. And um, I like to get people's reaction to that, to see if, if, if people buy onto that and if people embrace that. Because I think it's, it's needed, the, the inequality uh, that we have um, in the, la in, in, in it's not, in America, you know, the, 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 the left says it's all the problem is big business. And the right says all the problem is big government. And they're both lies. Neither are true. Neither big business is, is not the entire problem. And big government is not the entire problem. Um, everybody likes government when, you know, when they're sick or someone's breaking into their house. They, they like the fact that there's, a, there's someone they can call to help them. Everybody likes big business when they want something to work, like they want the plane to fly or they want to, you know, they want, they want, you know, food that's been through some sort of a safety system and is available for them. They don't have to go out and hunt it themselves. So, but business has gotten really good at extracting value instead of creating value. And that extracting of value instead of creating value has pushed more wealth to a smaller amount of people because when you create value, the wealth goes all the way down to the ecosystem. You hire employees and you train employees and those employees learn something and then they can go off and create their own company and they can create their own, their own value and their own ecosystem. When you extract value, it gets shared among 10 or 20 or 100 partners in a private equity firm. It doesn't go through the whole, the whole system. And that's another one of the, uh, uh, that's a, um, there's one of the things that caused the problem. It's not the only thing, it's one of the things that caused the problem. So I'm here to learn. Can I just do a quick follow on then? Uh, do you see yourself as entering into politics uh, specifically? You know, it's interesting that, that, that I get that question every time I speak because I have a, you know, I have a view um, on, on the way I think America should be run or the, uh, or the world, world should be run. The answer to your question is, no, I would rather use media to try to encourage other people because it it's going to take a lot of people to make this change. Encourage other people to help on this journey of change, rather than and the political system is one of the things that needs to be changed. Um, you know the the amount of money that's that's in the political system and the amount of money in lobbyists. I mean, th th think about just think about some of these statistics. So I I had a, a brother that that. Uh, that died, but he was a diabetic, right? So if you don't have insulin as a, he's a type one diabetic, which means he was born with it. You know, he didn't get this disease by eating Big Macs. He got this, he was born with this, with this disease. Um, 
So in America, insulin costs about $450 a month, right? In the rest of the world, it's $45 a month. In Canada, it's $45 a month. So it, insulin was invented in the 1920s. Over time, things are supposed to go down in price, not up in price. Something has been around, and the argument from big pharmaceutical companies is always, we have all this research, we have to get paid for it. Well, the 1920s was a long time ago. Even for my mother, that was a long time ago, okay? 1920s was a long time ago. So, you, 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 in America, if you live on the Canadian border, it's against the law to drive to Canada and bring back that medicine. So if you have a kid that's gonna die without insulin, it's again, you can drive across the border and bring all the beer you want back, but you can't bring back you can't bring back a medicine. So the amount of money that's in lobbying and the political system needs to get taken out. So we need to rethink the, the whole political system. So that's a group of people we have to motivate to rethink the, 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 the political system. So to answer your question, I'd rather motivate lots of other people to take on all these different problems so we can, we can fix it sort of in scale. Because we don't really have that much time to fix these problems. You know. Maybe we can do it over here. Oh, wait, oh, but we, you, you know, you, but we, we have, you're, you're just, you're, you're sort of, you had a more sane system, but you're sort of following the, um, the American craziness, number one. But also, in, 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 in fairness, there's a lot of frustrated people. When people are frustrated, if they don't know all the information, they just vote for what looks different. And that's not necessarily their fault. It, they're frustrated. So in America, we have 20 million people that have gone from $85,000 a year to $65,000 a year. They don't show up as unemployed. They don't show up on any statistic as being anything but fully employed. But I'll tell you, if you go from 85 in a family to 65, you are pissed off. Because that extra 20 is where the extra car payment was coming from. It's where the vacation was coming from. It's where you know, a housekeeper coming in once a month to help help with the house. It's where the daycare was coming in for the kids. It's where the Starbucks coffee was coming from instead of bringing your own coffee. And that, you know, you can live on 65 fine, comfortably. It's way harder to live on 65 when you used to be living on 85. It's very, very difficult. So those people are pissed off and they do things like vote for, for Trump because they're they're angry. And we can't, throw them out because they're angry. We have to solve, solve their problem. And we're not, we're not solving any problems right now. We're just attacking the other side. We're not solving, any, and, and you, you guys have, but I tell you what you guys have done in this country better than I've ever seen is one party says, you know, we're gonna change the work week to 35 hours, so the next party says, no, no, 30, and the next party says 25. <laughs> we're gonna put two billion, you know, we're gonna put a, a, another 500 nurses, the next party says 1,000, so the next one says 15,000. They just make up shit. <laughs> they, I mean, you can see it on the news cycles, they will actually make it up between the eight o'clock news in the morning and the six o'clock news. They'll just make up answers without any basis of how it's gonna happen. I've never, it's, you know, so we started that, but you guys have put it on a much faster cycle. <laughs> you, you just like, and, and that eventually, people are gonna to wanna to see some, they're gonna to wanna to see some adult in the room that says, look, this is the problem, this is how we're gonna solve, this is how we're gonna solve the problem, we're gonna to work together to solve that problem, but it's gonna, it's not gonna get any better soon. 
unless we recruit a lot of young people to help us out. And, and even that is difficult because the, the, the sometimes young people are so full of energy and, 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 and so optimistic, they hear something and they don't have the life experience to, to, to understand, to put that in context. So they jump onto a train that might be going the wrong way because it sounded, it sounded right. You, you know what I mean? So we have a lot of work cut off for us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Roy. Right, who's next? Ah, we will go Stephen. So pass the microphone forward, just one, if you could. This is Stephen. And there's your book, Stephen. Yeah, another one. Oh, Chris, is this, is this your second question? No. Hmm. Oh, that's your, you your copy. Yeah, you know, some people actually buy it, Rob. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't give me a copy. Okay, that's right. I've listened to it on Audible. That's right. I've listened to it on Audible. In this, in this. Before you yeah. gang up on me. No, no, yeah. no. This is, he's, he's read it and he's annotated it. And yeah, tapped it. I didn't, and, I didn't use the pages in the back, the blank ones, which you noted about, yeah. um, because your words are better than mine anyway. So I just highlighted <laughs> them. Um, but I've never been, I've never read a book or watched the podcast um, and read stuff and listened to stuff that resonated so strongly with me um, and the way I feel about things. Um, but anyway, you know, there's so many different things with um, you know, the way you say about people that have made it and they pull up the ladder, you know, and you, and you, you know, did you leave the ladder, or are you continuously putting those ladders down for people? There's, there's nothing that gives me more pleasure than putting the ladder down for someone else. Yeah. People who pull the ladder up when they, and for those of you who haven't read the book yet, it's, it's, it's referring to the fact that a lot of people, especially people who have made some money, once they get there, they seem to not want anyone else to have what they have. And it's really a unappealing, um, a character flaw that, that people have that they think that just because they have it, it, they like to keep the distance between them and everybody else as big as possible because they think it makes them look smarter or better, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, it's really, really a, an, an ugly characteristic. Mm. Uh, and I don't know what insecurity drives people to want to do that, but there's nothing more rewarding than than you know, putting the ladder down for the next person mm. to, to climb up on. Yeah. So I don't know what character flaw. I just feel, you know, it's maybe it was their parents didn't bring them up right. I don't, I don't know. But yeah. it's a terrible character flaw. It is, but yeah. I see it all over the world. Yeah. I think it's a scarcity mindset that there's, yeah. you know, the difference is scarcity and abundance. Scarcity, there's not enough. Abundance, there is more than enough. There is. I think a lot of people have a, oh, I might lose it. Someone might take it from me quite a... Scarcity-based thought process. See yeah. that a lot. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think no matter how rich you are, there's there there is a point in which you've got enough, and then the only, the only way I I think you can enrich your life further is to help others and do good for others. I but by the way, at least, it's got to be at least ten million. Oh, you, you're well, right. It's, it's yeah, whatever. It's whatever you choose. What, what, well, no, 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 what no, 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 no. I've, I've worked this out. Yeah. 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 I know you can say it's whatever you choose. Yeah. But I've worked this out because I get asked all the time, "What's enough? When's it enough?" I get asked yeah. that all the time. Obviously, the human nature is growth. That's evolution. Yeah. So it'll probably never be enough. But if you want to know what enough is, it's ten million in this country at the moment. What, right. Why is that? Because on five percent a year, you can live a pretty comfortable life doing most of the things that you want to do without worrying about money and having time and money to 
put the ladder down for others. I mean, all right, it might be eight or seven for some, it might be 12 for others, mm. but enough is how much money have I got so I can do what I want? I, and if what you want is not work, you've got to be able to live off the income. Yeah. And assuming 5% on a capital base, I would say, Definitely a million is nothing now. A million is nowhere near enough. Talk about a millionaire. I think you've got to be a decamillionaire to have enough. That's my, I've I've tried to work it out because I get asked so many times. And especially, I mean, look, if you're 40 or 50 or 60, if you're 40, it's got to be more. If you're 60, you know, you might not have as long to live. Um, But you've got, it's true. What an uplifting guy. What an uplifting guy. I'm 50. Oh, I'm so fucking I'm sorry. <laughs> look, look. With a black, with a black cold heart like he has, he's gonna die young. So it is. It, 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 look, I've I've made a lot of money. I've given away a lot of money. I've lost a lot of money. And I can tell you for sure that the difference between the 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 times I've had a lot of money and I've given it all away. I've had a lot of money and I've lost it. I've had a lot of money. And up and down, and there, you know, other than having to work harder, maybe than I wanted to at a particular time, because maybe I wanted to go, you know, be with someone else or go to someone's sporting event or something, and I wasn't able to because I had to focus on work because I was in one of those phases when I didn't have the money. Other than that, there's no difference. There's really, I can promise you, um, they're, they're really, I mean, I, look, if you're in a situation where you can't eat, that's a different, that's a different situation. But um, I've had big houses and I've had small houses. Uh, uh, I've had houses I've owned and houses I've rented. There, there, there's, I've had, you know, Planes, boats. I've had. I, there really is not as much difference as you'd think. If what you want to do with your life is to try to create something, you know. Uh, one time when I was going, when I was going through a, a deal where I, had, where, where I was, a, you know, I potentially could lose a lot of money. Someone that's important to me said, "Hey, look, what's the worst that can happen? You can become a starving artist, and you might like it." And I said, "Okay." I don't, I don't know if I want to try, but okay. At least I know. At least I know what the downside is. Thanks very much. Thanks. You had another question. You have a lot of little things in that book. I've, I've got. I've got lots. I mean, it, there's. What was your favorite part of the book? There, there's so much in there. I mean, I, as people were here, I've got an accent, and that accent could, in the first instance, where you talk about a Bostonian accent, um, and. It can give you an advantage in, a, in as much as people might think you're a little bit um, or not as intelligent as you are. Now, I, some people may. You just said me. I sound stupid. No, <laughs> no, 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 you did. You did, didn't you? No, no, that's, yeah. you that's okay. It's in your book. That's okay. Yeah, because the other half of the Boston accent was you could have been attached to the mafia. So yeah, sort of, no, yeah, yeah, people yeah. people assume yeah. when you have a South Boston accent. Yeah. You're you're a little bit of a gangster, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I wish we, people thought that about yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> Rob's a bit of a gangster. I'd take that. Yeah. <laughs> what it, are you shaking at? You got tycoon yeah. on your hat. <laughs> yeah. 
there is there is so, just so much great stuff in here that that really you know I, I just connect with it all it's, it's feel free to tell Amazon that <laughs> I, I have oh, thank you I, I appreciate that yeah you're, there's I, quite a long review there I appreciate that yeah, thank you problem. I'm sorry I didn't thank you <laughs> sorry, well, thank no you problem. very much for that no trouble thanks thank you Stephen. Thank you.